Hello, I'm Derek Walker. I'm the pastor of the Oxford Bible Church. And today I want to give you a message that's a bit different, based on a hymn, a unique hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. There's an amazing story behind this hymn that I want to share with you. It was written by John Newton and uh, he was a colorful, forceful character who lived also a very colorful life and he became a great preacher and hymn writer. He wrote also, glorious things of thee are spoken and how sweet the name of Jesus sounds, but by far uh, the hymn Amazing Grace is the most famous. Even of all hymns, it's crossed all boundaries, it's made it into the pop charts, it's by far the most well-known folk song ever. And uh, it's just something unique about it in the way that everyone knows it. Um, it was actually written in 1773 to illustrate a sermon on New Year's Day. It, it became published in the hymn book a few years later, but it settled into obscurity in England. However, in America, it was used extensively in the sec Second Great Awakening, the time of Charles Finney in the early 19th century, and it's become the most famous of all hymns. It's performed about 10 million times every year. Uh, it's called the Pearl of Spiritual Songs. It's the most recorded hymn of history, even song possibly. No other Christian composition comes close and it's been used no doubt by God to bring many people to faith and it's affected every continent and left a spiritual mark everywhere. It's touched so many hearts, it's transformed lives, um, it's crossed over into secular music. Everyone's moved by it even if they don't really understand it. And. Uh, and I'm sure you've sung it many times. And uh, it was even sung by those who marched in the civil rights movement. And they say that somehow, as they sung that, they felt safe. Um, it tells Newton's own testimony in song, his autobiography, you might say, of how God transformed him by his amazing grace from blindness to sight. And so it's an unusual start. It, it just, most songs build up to a climax. But this start, song starts with a climactic announcement, an exclamation, a raw release of emotion. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. To understand Newton's amazement at the grace of God, we need to look at his life and we're going to do that. You know, it says, how sweet the sound. What is the sound of amazing grace? The sound of grace is the gospel of grace. Paul said, the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus was to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. That's the amazing sound of grace when we hear the message of the gospel, the good news. What is grace? Well, there's the acrostic. It's, good, it's um, God's riches 
at Christ's expense. That spells out grace. But why is it um, amazing? Well, first of all, it's unearned. It's undeserved. It's, it's a free gift. It's amazing because it was so expensive. The Bible says that Jesus purchased us, the church of God, with his own blood. Or rather, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. We are purchased not with the blood of an angel or with any material thing, but with the blood of God himself. He didn't just pay for the forgiveness of all our sins, but he paid for all of God's riches for all eternity. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying the price is paid in full for everything. What? That's amazing grace that it was done and it was undeserved by us. We did nothing to contribute to our salvation. Uh, but it wasn't just like giving a free gift to a friend on their birthday that they didn't deserve it. It wasn't just undeserved, it's ill-deserved. Because not only did we do nothing to deserve it, but we deserved the opposite. We deserved hell, we deserved destruction. We were sinners going our own way. We were in rebellion against God. We were his enemies and yet he still loved us and he paid the price. He died for us, paying the price for our salvation. It's amazing grace. Romans 5 says, The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. What causes us to love God so much? It's his amazing grace. Because he goes on to say, For while we were without strength, that is, we were weak to save ourselves. We couldn't do it. Without strength, in due time, Christ died not for the nice people, but for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We deserved the opposite. We deserved judgment and destruction. But Christ loved us anyway. That's amazing grace. Much more than he says, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if while we were yet his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. In other words, if God did all that for us, dying for us, when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, when we were enemies, and he did that for us, that's how much he loved us, how much more now? will he do for us now that we're his beloved children? Praise God. As Romans 8 says, he who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all to die on the cross, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Hallelujah. You know, we all underestimate the magnitude of our sin before God. That's why we find it hard to come to terms with hell, with that idea. But the more we know the greatness of our sin, the more his grace will be amazing to us. Jesus took our place on the cross. He took our forsakenness. He took the penalty and the punishment for our sin. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did it so that we could cry out, my God, my God, why have you blessed me so much? I don't deserve it. It's all amazing grace. And that's what Newton was talking about, amazing grace. He just bursts out, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, the Bible tells us that we were wretches. 
And we'll see from Newton's life that he, he indeed was a wretch. But the Bible doesn't spare our blushes about our wretchedness. Ephesians chapter 2 says, You he made alive. What, this a whole chapter is a chapter of God's grace. And it starts by showing how wretched we are and how unable we are to save ourselves. You he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we were all conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. We, we deserved the wrath of God. Well, let's talk about John Newton himself because this is what will help bring the hymn to life for us. He wrote this from personal experience. It's his spiritual autobiography in verse, it's Amazing Grace. He says this, how industrious is Satan served. I was formerly one of his active undertempters, and had my influence been equal to my wishes, I would have carried all the human race with me. A common drunkard or profligate is a petty sinner to what I was. On his tombstone at his parish uh, church, uh, he later became a minister at Olney, uh, it says this, John Newton, he wrote it himself, John Newton Clark, once an infidel and liber, libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. He said this near the end of his life, when I was young, I was sure of many things. Now there are only two things of which I'm sure. The one is that I'm a miserable sinner, and the other, that Christ is an all-sufficient saviour. He is well taught, who learns these two lessons. So let's have a look at his life. He was born in 1725. The only godly influence in his life was his mother. She was a devout believer, a very religious uh, lady, a close friend of another great hymn writer, Isaac Watts, who, for example, wrote, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And she brought him up on the hymns, the ch children's hymns of Isaac Watts. She prayed. She tried to get him educated, taught him the basics of reading and writing, and prayed for him every day, and God heard her prayers, that he would become a minister of the gospel. But sadly, she died when he was still young at the age of seven. And when she died, the father remarried, and he was sent to a strict boarding school, and he started developing a very strong rebellious streak, was always in trouble with those over him, had a real temper, was known for his violent outbursts when things didn't go his way. And he rebelled. He ran away at the age of 10. And he dreamed of following in the footsteps of his father, who was a sea captain, a merchant. And he went, at the tender age of 11, he joined his father and became an apprentice at sea, joining his father's ship until the father retired. So for six years, that's what John did. But life was by no means plain sailing for this young mariner. He soon learned the ways of wickedness. He soon forgot his mother's teaching to his great cost. He was known for his headstrong disobedience. Uh, as a sailor, he denounced his Christian faith that, that his, his mother had taught him. 
He wrote this later in his life, he said, like an unwary sailor who quits his port just before a rising storm, I renounced the hopes and comforts of the gospel at the very time when every other comfort was about to fail me. His life's was a path was going to take all kinds of twists and turns, and yet he would look back and see how God had providentially taken him through the storms to the safety of the harbor of heaven. Well, he said, I loved sin, and I was unwilling to forsake it. I pretended to talk of virtue, yet my delight and habitual practice was wickedness. He read and took on a free-thinking rationalist philosophy, and he renounced the Christian faith. Well, his father um, had set up a job for him, and, uh, but in his disobedience, he was late to, and he missed his ship to Jamaica. The reason he was late is he had fallen in love with a, a young girl called Polly, and he had lingered and foolishly missed his ship. And as a result, when he did turn up at the port, he was press-ganged into the Royal Navy, which was uh, forcefully adopted into the army. Uh, and he joined a ship called uh, HMS Harwich. He was still very rebellious, and, and, but things got more severe now. He was actually in the Navy. He was known as a hard drinker, a coarse talker. He began trying to influence others away from any religious beliefs. He was, his life degenerated. He was disliked by the officers and the crew, distrusted. He ignored his father's advice. He abandoned his mother's dreams for his life. And he became known among the sailors as the great blasphemer. You know, he was, now for sailors to think that you are got a dirty mouth, then you really do have a dirty mouth. And uh, he was known for that. He was lazy, self-centered, didn't care about others. He'd constantly be late, constantly uh, getting into trouble. And finally, he heard that his ship would be away for seven, five years. And he didn't want to be away from his poly that long. And so he deserted. Now, in those days, to desert the Navy, that is a hanging offense. And uh, he was captured after two days, frog-marked back to the ship for 24 miles, placed in iron, irons. Now, the captain should really have had him executed. But God was taking care of him, and out of respect for his father, he wasn't. But he was publicly flogged. After he had recovered, he was demoted all the way down to the lowest rank, the ordinary seaman. And he, sa he said... I was degraded and punished as I well deserved. He was publicly beaten many times and abused as, and treated very badly, of course. And he was insolent and rebellious, which only just made it worse. And he said that the only re reason he didn't murder the captain or commit suicide is that he didn't want his poly to think badly of him. And so he, after being disciplined by the captain, he openly mocked the captain. He created obscene songs. This was his gift beginning to work here. Obscene poems and songs about the captain that became so popular that the crew wanted to join in. He got into uh, disagreements. He was, as a result, starved to death almost, imprisoned at sea, so at times even chained like slaves that they occasionally carried. 
Well, an opportunity came for him to leave the Navy because uh, the captain was ordered to supply two men from his ship to serve as crewmen on a slave ship to Africa. And this is where his career in slave trading began. And uh, he pleaded with the captain to let him go. And I'm sure the captain was very happy to, to let him go. And so he was out of the Navy and on this slave ship, headed for Sierra Leone. And for six months, they were traveling up and down, collecting slaves to be transported to America. And he then approached one of the owners of the ship, Mr. Clow and said, could I leave the ship and can I join your um, slave business? And, uh, and so he was put in charge of a slave factory in Sierra Leone. And, um, but things soon became very sour and he ended up as literally as a slave for a time and he sent a letter to his father saying how bad things were and the, his father asked a ship to look for him and, by an amazing coincidence, as it were, he was on the beach when the ship went by and he was rescued. And he was taken back on the Greyhound now and he was, was rescued. Well, he continued in his bad ways. He was often heard blaspheming God. He was known as the most profane man the captain had ever heard. And, uh, he, he had actually come up with worst words the captain had ever heard and even created new words to exceed the limits of verbal debauchery. He was so good that, at this uh, filthy talk that even the old sea salts were shocked by what they heard. That's the kind of person he was. He was often so drunk that he couldn't function. He almost fell aboard once and he couldn't swim. And uh, well, the only, time he, the only reason he was tolerated was because they had respect for his father. And so it was very true when he talked about going through many dangerous tours and snares. That is true about his, his life. Uh, he says, I was exceedingly wretched. I, only sinned, I not only sinned with a high hand myself, but made it my study to tempt and seduce others on every occasion. Well, eventually the Greyhound got ready to go home across the Atlantic. And um, he had very little to do. So he, there was a book at hand, which was actually based on the imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis. And he had nothing else to read. So he began to read and began reflecting on his life. In the song we, we sing, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. And it was on this journey that God actually started to turn John Newton around. And here's how it happened. There was a violent storm in March, and, the sh and they had never seen a storm like this. The, the, the ship was hit by wave after wave, and it seemed certain that it was sinking. Newton says, the sea had torn away the upper timbers on one side and made the ship a mere wreck in a few minutes. Taking all the circumstances, it was astonishing and almost miraculous that any of us survived to relate the story we ha had recourse to the pumps, but the water increased against our efforts. And, and it seemed like they were going to die. And then Newton had one little idea and he, and he get, told it to the captain. And he said to the captain, if this will not do, then the Lord have mercy on us. And I think he shocked himself by calling on the Lord in this way. But that was the turning point and soon the, the storm abated. They survived and for the next 11 hours he, he was steering the ship. 
and he was thinking about the extraordinary turns in my life, he says, the calls, the warnings, the deliverances I'd met with. About six in the evening, I heard that the ship was freed from water, and there arose a gleam of hope. I thought I saw the hand of God displayed in our favor, and I began to pray. And at this time, he began thinking, am I worthy of God's mercy? Is God still giving me a chance in my life? I've done so much against God. I've mocked him. I've turned others against him. And he began to believe, though, God had his hand on his life. And that was, he called it, his memorable day when he started turning to God. They were still in terrible trouble. They had a month to reach um, Ireland, and they had provisions for a week. The ship was devastated. They had lost all their stuff. And, and yet, even the captain wanted to throw him overboard because they thought he was like Jonah. He was the one bringing all the storms upon them because they had more storms after that. But he made it back. And he says, March the 10th is a day to be remembered by me. I've never suffered it past wholly unnoticed since the 19, 1748. On that day, the Lord sent from on high and delivered me from deep waters. Well, he also wrote at 77, my gracious Lord, you've preserved me to see another anniversary of that great, awful and merciful day when I was on the point of sinking with all my sins and blasphemies on my head into the pit which has no bottom. And I must have sunk had not thine eye pitied me and preserved me in a manner which appears to me a little less miraculous than all the wonders you did perform for Israel in Egypt and at the Red Sea. Oh, I have now cause to praise thee for that terrible storm which first shook my infidelity. And so this was the turning point. He started to change in his character, in his life. And uh, he was able to say, amazing grace, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now unfound, was blind, but now I see. We were once lost and blind in our sin. We couldn't find our way back to God. We couldn't see the truth. And this is taken from the story in Luke 15, where the shepherd has a hundred sheep, but one of them gets lost. And so he goes after that lost sheep. And when he finds that lost sheep, he rejoices. And so God, we are lost. We couldn't get back to God, but Jesus went after us and saved us. And the words I'm lost, but now I'm found, it actually comes from Luke 15, uh, where the parable of the prodigal son when the prodigal son comes back to the father. The father says, it was right we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now is found, you see. And where it says that I was blind and now I see, that comes from John 9, where, it, where the blind man says, one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. And his physical healing was a picture of his, the spiritual opening of his eyes. We couldn't see God. We couldn't see Jesus, the way to God. But God's amazing grace opened our eyes. And it says his grace taught his heart to fear. And that's how God's grace starts to work. Convicting of our sin, convicting us of our need of salvation, that judgment is upon our head. And God has to teach our heart to fear, to realize we need to get right from God. And then God shows us the answer in the person of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God says when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And God saved Newton's life many times and taught his heart to fear. Uh, through that storm in particular. And then it says, and, and grace our fears relieved. 
How precious did the grace appear the hour I first believed. You see, when we come and we put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, then we receive our sins forgiven. Our fears are relieved and we know we have forgiveness and eternal life. How precious the hour, the moment we put our trust in Christ, how precious that grace of God appeared as we know that we are rescued from eternal death. And, God's, and, G, and God says that in Ephesians 2. He says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. By grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Newton said, by the grace of God I am what I am. It's certain I'm not what I ought to be, but blessed be God I am not what I once was. God has mercifully brought me up out of the deep miry clay and set my feet on the rock Jesus Christ he saved my soul and now it's my heart's desire to extol and honor his matchless free sovereign and distinguishing grace because by the grace of God I am what I am it's my heart's great joy to ascribe my salvation entirely to the grace of God and his character began to change and he married Polly and his her parents of course knew he was trouble but he won them over because he was changed. But in another way, he didn't change in that he continued to be a slave trader for a number of years. And it took an, a bit of time before he came to see that this was evil. Uh, as he said, I was blind. He was blind to the evils of the slave trade, as many were at that time. Although he did tr treat his slaves much better than most of them did, but eventually his eyes were opened to it, and he became one of the main forces in the abolition of slavery. He, his, his, he wrote booklets that described what it was like as a slave trader. And it got, all the parliamentarians read it, and he supported William Wilberforce, and he was his pastor actually, and helped William Wilberforce continue until the slave trade was abolished. So he was a major force against it in the end. Well, through many dangers, toils, and snares, he says, I have already come, is grace that's brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. You know, New Newton's time on the seas provides the imagery for this. You see, his, our youth was like going on the open sea. He says, God's brought me through many dangers, toils, and snares. Grace has brought me safe thus far. Grace has looked after me in life. This is God's grace during our life. And then he says, and grace will lead me home. And this is talking about when a ship reaches the, the, the harbor. Uh, the last part of the journey is particularly dangerous. And they have to trust the harbor master to, who knows the, the, the entrance very well. And the tug, he puts himself in the hands of the tug and the tug leads him home, leads the ship home. And he's talking about dying grace. When we come near the end of our life, life becomes very narrow. And it's a very important time. And you put your hands into the hands of Jesus, the captain of your salvation, for him to lead you home, to cross to the other side. And so he says, grace will lead me home. I'll put my hand on my deathbed. I'll put my hand in the hand of the Lord. And he will lead me home. A wonderful picture of dying grace. And then it says, 
When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we've first begun. Heaven, we've got a wonderful future waiting for us in heaven. Ephesians says we've been raised with Christ and made to sit together with Christ so that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. In other words, God's made us to sit down and he's going to draw the veil draw the curtain back and God has an eternal display of grace that's going to last forever and ever where he will constantly unveil more of his glorious grace to us. We have a wonderful future in heaven. So grace taught us to fear. Grace saved us. Grace brings us through the storms of life. Dying grace helps lead us home and then we have eternal grace in the presence and the glory of God forever. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.